take a seed, you plant it, you grow it, you dry it, you roll it, you smoke it, and it goes down smooth. Spanning the continent to bring you the truth about cannabis and marijuana law reform. I smoke pot and I like it a lot. CannabisRadio.com presents The Russ Belleville Show The voice of the marijuana nation Hey, this is great, man Now, here's your host Radical Russ Belleville Good day, tokens and tokens And non-token lovers of liberty It is Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016 And it's got to be 420 Somewhere in the world Oh boy, I sure wish I was with you live today I can't think of any place I'd rather not be than where I am right now. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, I am sitting sideways on a doctor's table as a gastroenterologist sticks a camera up inside my body, all around. You know the tale of my brother getting that stage four colon cancer, so I had to schedule myself a colonoscopy, and that's where I'm at right this minute. So (laughs) make up your own jokes about what kind of output my show will be today, but it's going to be pre-recorded. That's what it's really going to be. We're going to bring you another great bit from the Southwest Cannabis Conference and Expo took place in Fort Worth this last weekend. And the closing speech was really not a speech so much as it was an episode of the Montel Williams show. Montel Williams was there and delivered an extended discussion with the audience on his thoughts about medical marijuana and for that matter, marijuana legalization. You know, Montel hasn't always been on our side, but he seems to have warmed a little bit to the inevitability of recreational marijuana legalization, but most of his talks centered on medical marijuana, his personal battle with multiple sclerosis. We also got to learn a lot about Montel the man. So that will be our show for today, this extended episode of the Montel Williams show on the Russ Belleville show. So we'll see you later. Enjoy Montel Williams. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. I'm taking care of me. This should be on. Oh, hello. Thank you, everyone. So I am so excited to be here today. I've been here all weekend. It's been wonderful, all of the vendors, all of the different speakers. And of course, today we're going to be having a fabulous keynote speaker. As you probably know, our guest today has had 17 years experience as an award-winning, an Emmy award-winning host. You may not know, but he actually began his career in the United States Marine Corps. He was the first black Marine that was selected for the Naval Academy Prep School. Then he went on to graduate from the United States Naval Academy. Montel Williams earned a degree in general engineering and a minor in international security affairs. He also earned a degree in the Defense Language Institute in Russian and Mandarin Chinese. I know. While serving in the military for 22 years, Williams was the recipient of two Meritorious Service Medals, two Navy Commendation Medals, two Navy Achievement Medals, and various other military awards and citations. He is a New York Times bestseller, an author, a passionate advocate for veterans, education, health, and the environment. He's an entrepreneur and a philanthropist. Williams is currently collaborating with the DOD to develop a test for treatment of TBI. 
He is also the principal for Pure Blue Resources, an innovative renewable energy technology company. He serves as a board member of the Fisher House Foundation and the Military Adaptive Sports. He is the host of the 2016 Invictus Games. He was named a special envoy to the United Nations. He also works with Save Our Sharks and We Are the Oceans. Since his diagnosis with MS in 1999, he has been a daily user of medicinal cannabis. He is a fierce advocate for safe access for patients. Please help me and welcome Montel Williams. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to do something real quick. Those in the back, move up as close as you can. And while you're standing up, put your cameras down and stand up for a second. Everybody, you've been sitting down for too long. Stand up for a minute. Everybody, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Put your cameras down for a second. You can get them back out later. Put them down. Selfie later. Put it down. Everybody in the room, do me a favor. Look at me. Everybody, can you see me? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hands put them right here. Everybody got them, right? You got to put your phone down. Because I'm going to ask you to do something. Everybody, right now. Turn physically to your right. Turn to your right. And the most important thing of all, you have to listen to the directions very, very carefully. The most important direction of all, without hurting anyone, you see that person in front of you, I want you to place your shoulder, your hands on their shoulders very lightly. Place your hands on the shoulder of the person in front of you, very lightly. And shake them up and wake them up. Shake them up. Stop. Turn to the left. Left. Wait a minute, I said follow the directions. Who told you to put your hands on anybody? <laughs> hands here. On the shoulders. Wake them up. Stop. Stop. Don't hurt them. Turn the face forward. Face it forward, still standing. Take your hands, place them on yourself. Shake yourself up and wake yourself up. Good, sit down. All right, you know how silly you look, you wouldn't do this. Sit for a minute. Thank you so much for inviting me here today. To talk, and I listened backstage, I listened for a little while out here, listening to the information that you were getting, and I'm, first of all, I, I got to back up a little bit, because I don't know how many of you in this room actually know how much I've been involved in this movement for now the last 14 years. I'm 15 years. I'm probably the only celebrity in this country that's been busted twice for cannabis. Both times, it's been thrown out of court with prejudice. Okay? But I think what I want to do before I even start talking about cannabis is I want to make sure you understand who I am so you understand where I'm coming from. And I'm going to make a lot of statements today. Some of you are going to walk away very angry at me. And guess what? I don't care. And I'm not pulling, let's just get it straight, long before there were other perpetrators, if you've ever seen me speak, this is the same me that's been the same me for the last 14 years. Other people may be out here talking as if they've been honest to themselves and others. I don't necessarily think that that's true. But from my own perspective, I'm going to tell you right now, some of you in this room are going to get a little angry at me when I start telling you about my feelings about cannabis. And we'll address that because I'll give you an opportunity to fire off a couple questions later on. But let me just maybe go back and tell you who I am. I was born... Back in 1956, I turned 60 years old this year, and I'm proud of it, baby. 60. Earned them all. Born in 1956, 
in one of the biggest ghettos in America. As a matter of fact, it was the location of the first Superfund cleanup site. It was called Cherry Hill, Baltimore, a dump. My family lived about three blocks from that dump. And as a small child, I was the youngest of four. And as a small child, I can remember all the older kids in the neighborhood making all of us little kids. And I was about three at this time, three and a half, four. We used to have to go every Christmas for about two weeks after Christmas. They make the little kids go down and we'd run along the trash line in the dump trying to chase out the rats so that all the older kids who got BB guns for Christmas could shoot some. Seemed like it was pretty much fun back then, but, you know, as I look back at it now, I'm running around most of the time barefoot, no tennis shoes, socks, in a hazardous waste site. That was the first site that America used to clean up. We spent the Superfund site, very first one. Why? Because Bethlehem Steel was there. And then I wonder why I'm the first person in my entire family lineage with any form of neurological disease, MS. No one in my family before me has ever had any illness like this. But I look back at my childhood, and there's several things that I've kind of done along the way that maybe helped to bring this on. But let me jump forward. So we get out of the ghetto. had two very, very hard-working parents at home who were, happen to be alive today, 84 and 84 respectively. My father goes to work every single day as a tax judge at 84, every day. But in my home... Two hardworking parents. When I was younger, my father worked five jobs. My mother worked three. And I'm not kidding you. My father worked five jobs. He's Jamaican, but he would never admit it. <laughs> and he was a shift worker. So he would come home and very, very, you know, he would be gone for four days. I see he had four days, four E's, four mids. We would only see him once every 12 days for four days in a row. And when we saw him, it was always at dinner. And my father always demanded that his four kids came and sat at the table with him for the four days that he was home. And I was the youngest of four, so as I was growing up, I just remember that the requirement in my house was the first thing I remember as a child was having to sit at the table at dinner and spit out four words that I had gotten out of the dictionary and when I was so young that I couldn't get it myself. My sister had to give them to me because my father demanded that I did it also. But we would sit at the table with him at dinner and he would make us regurgitate back those four words, spell them, use them in a sentence and give you the, the, the Webster's Dictionary definition. Another thing, now I look back at my past and realize why do I have this mouth that I have? Because from the age four on, I entered elementary school being able to read the newspaper. Okay, just because my parents pushed. And let's also remember, I'm that kid that came from the ghetto, the throwaway neighborhood that right now, if you look up Cherry Hill, it's still considered Baltimore's worth ghetto. But none of us were ever supposed to make it out of there, right? So again, parents who concentrated on education and made sure we recognized that, paid attention to that, is why I stand here today. But not enough. So, you know, we get through, I, I moved from Cherry Hill, my parents worked really hard, my dad built the house that we lived in. He was a carpenter on the side, he was a fireman, he was a musician, he cooked, and literally, homeboy for four years took extra supplies from about 35 houses and built us a house. So we have a house living. Then I started being bused to school. This is back in the early 60s, very reminiscent of a time we're living in right now. 
Because there seems to be this whole movement right now by so many individuals to make sure we go back to that same segregated America. But before, I'm not going to do any political things, but they may kind of touch on a little bit. But again, so I got bust the school. The original group of busing. My little community that we lived in in a place called Glen Burnie when we moved out of Cherry Hill. We moved to Glen Burnie, Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Most of you don't know that. But it's a little enclave in Glen Burnie. There was one little black community called Morse Hill. Bing! That's where we were. So every one of those little black kids right there got bused an hour and a half, two hours away to go to school over here. To make sure that we could integrate this small little community called Linthicum, Maryland. And I remember one of the first memories I had when I was seven years old was getting out of a bus and walking towards the school and there's all these people screaming and yelling at me. Didn't have the slightest clue. Calling me names, holding up signs. I didn't even understand what that, the word meant. But lived for probably 25 to 30 days, first couple of weeks going to school. Had to go through that and live through that. It etched an indelible mark in my brain, but one different than what most of you would think it would have done. I'll tell you what that was in a little bit. So I go through that, but remember, I entered elementary school being able to read at probably a third or fourth grade level with a vocabulary that was easily a sixth grade level. So the second I got in school, it was really weird. I remember distinctly that almost every teacher that I had a class with, because back then you only had changed classes once in the entire day, all of them really hated me except for one. And that one lady, and it's something that I think if people learn more today, what she did for me close to 50 years ago, we could have less of the labels that we put on children that we put on a day. She comes across a kid. She hands me the, the first spelling test. It's done in three minutes. All the other kids are sitting there. I'm picking on the guy's back of the head. I'm going nuts because I'm done. So what does she recognize? I got a kid who's really fast. She would take me out of the classroom, put me in the hallway, and make me draw things, make me work on other things, but just kept this mind very busy. Now, that happened in almost every class that I was in throughout my entire K through six, seven, eight, nine. I get in ninth grade, now I'm going a little crazy. Because, you know, I'm, I'm like kind of the whiz kid, but I'm also on a little edge. So I got into student politics. I ended up being elected the president of my class junior year, president of my class my senior year. I was elected as a student on the Board of Education my senior year, the first child ever put on the Board of Education in the state my senior year. I was the vice president of, of the Maryland Association of Student Councils, the parliamentarian to the Chesapeake Regional Association of Student Councils. I was one of those kids. But guess what? I also smoked a little pot. Why? Because my sister did and my brother didn't. These are real baby boomers. And I'll never forget, you know, I, I, my father used to be a pipe smoker. And I didn't smoke that much. I did it every once in a blue minute after a football game over here, over there. Really wasn't something that, that was a major part of my life, but I experimented. I hit age 17, 18, getting ready to graduate from high school and realized that my parents had run out of money. There was no more money left to send me to college. And 
I got moved very, very, just, just to my core by a young man who was a friend of my brother's, a year older than me, who had gone off and gone to the Marine Corps. He got injured while he was down in Cuba back in 1974. Came back in that bad Marine Corps uniform, you know, arm in a sling. Still looked like a bad dude, right? So I moved so much that at a time when, you know, we all, I heard the big applause when they mentioned the fact that I served in the service. But I want to take you back to 1973 and 1974, where you had on a military uniform and people spit on the ground, called you a baby killer. You would be asked to leave restaurants if you walked in in your uniform. How things changed so quickly. And about to change back that same way right now, the way we are treating our veterans. But we'll get to that in a minute. So, out of money, I figured out I got this. I could get in, in, go into service, get the GI Bill, I'll graduate, then I'll go to college. So I entered the Marine Corps. Went to Paris Island in 1974. Graduated from Paris Island as honor man, so I got meritoriously promoted. Went immediately to my duty station. Two months later, I got meritoriously promoted again to the rank of, of Lance Corporal. And then three months later, they were asking me, you ever heard of this place called the Naval Academy? I think you should probably go. I'm like, okay. So I went ahead and applied to the Naval Academy Prep School. Got accepted to the prep school in Newport, Rhode Island with 40 other Marines. A year later, only 21 of us graduated. Only 12 of us got appointments to the Naval Academy. And at the end of four years, only four of us graduated. I was the only black one. So I leave the Naval Academy. But right before I graduated, that's okay, right before I graduated, something really strange happens. We're in the process of getting our pre-commissioning immunizations where they give you all the battery of, of injections. And back then, the class at the United States Naval Academy, class of 80, we were the last class that they used the gun on. And the reason why is because the first 100 people that went through got an overdose of diphtheria typhoid. I was one of them, put me in the hospital for almost three weeks, went almost blind in my left eye. I entered the, Marine, I entered the service wanting to be a pilot, and the damage it did to this left eye was irreversible. So the Marine Corps wouldn't take me back. I actually had to fight to be commissioned because... This was 12 weeks before I graduated, and I was going to be damned that they are not going to give me a job after you put me through what you put me through. And it wasn't my fault that this happened to my eye, so I literally had to go to the Senate and the Congress, had an investigation, forced them to give me a commission five months later, made it retroactive to my class, and then I got, but they wouldn't let me go back in the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps can only accept you if you have correctable vision. And my vision was incorrect, uncorrectable. Now, unbeknownst to me, what had happened is they had given me such a large blast of this diphtheria and typhoid, my immune system tried to fight that off. I would have probably had MS anyway, but it triggered MS. And no one knew what that was. I'm a 22-year-old. Back then, I weighed about 195 pounds um, I was a boxer. I had 22 fights. I won a great championships at the Naval Academy. I was a power lifter. I'm walking around looking like a Neanderthal and walked in and they said, no, nah, you can't have a mess. It all happens to women. It's not you. So for 22 years, I get misdiagnosed. 22 years. Went back and forth to doctors trying to see them. Every one of them kept telling me, 
you can't be, and I should back up and say, if some of you remember me when I started the Montel Williams Show, if you just Google 1991, I weighed about 210. I mean, I literally was one of those guys that used to think that the more space you take up, the more man you are. And knowing that, you know, after I figured out the facts, I fixed that. However, I was walking around carrying a lot of extra weight that I didn't really need to carry. I get diagnosed, and part of the reason why I got diagnosed, and this is really kind of crazy. I'm already out now, I'm seeing doctors, going back every eh, eight months, sometimes nine months. There's something weird going on in my leg. There's something weird going on in my shoulder. something weird going on here. Nobody could explain it. How many of you remember the, the television show, Touched by an Angel? Remember that? Della Reese, right? right? Okay. Well, I played on an episode of Touched by an Angel. As a matter of fact, I'm the only character on Touched by an Angel that the angel said, nah, send his butt straight to hell. Because <laughs> what happened was, in that episode, I played a guy who was a cult leader. And throughout the entire episode, I'm doing all these crazy things. And at the end of the episode, I was going to get the entire congregation to drink the Kool-Aid and set the church on fire and everybody's going to burn, right? And uh, throughout the episode, it was really kind of crazy because the director kept coming to me and saying, you know, well, I need you, in, the, in the script, it said, you need to cry here, you need to cry here, you need to cry here. And I'm like, cry? Couldn't figure out, yeah, I'm going to cry on cue? Okay, all right. I'm reading the script. The morning that I flew out to Utah to shoot Touch by an Angel, I had been working out like crazy. I weighed about 214. I'd just done muscle and fitness, thinking I'm a bad, eh, bad to the bone, right? I did a big back workout. Woke up the next morning to get on a plane to fly to Utah. And about an hour into that flight, my feet caught on fire. Literally have never gone out. I started and went to an MS bout not knowing this. And that MS bout literally, I got off that plane in Utah. I was supposed to go to Woodrobe, go to get checked for the upcoming shoot days. I could not even put my feet on the floor. I had somebody who actually I got a wheelchair, rolled out to a car, hid, went to a doctor. Went to one doctor in, in Utah, and the doctor says to me, without even blinking an eye, anybody ever say you have MS? Psst, I think that's what it looks like to me. Went out right back and walked out of the room. Came back in and said, yep, I think that's what you got. If I were you, I'd stop working because the stress that you must be under is what's causing all these problems. And, I mean, I went from one second hurting like I've never hurt before in my life and then you have a person look you in the face and say, go home and die. Couldn't reconcile it. For the next three, four, five months, the bout didn't stop. Pain got worse. I finally got diagnosed officially with MS. I chased doctors all over this planet. I started a regimen of every opioid that you can think of. At one point, I was taking 12 Oxycontin a day. A lot of you don't even know a drug called Talwin. All the sets I did, Percocet, Oxycet, uh, Vicodin, Talwin, go down the list. And again, celebrity, is not a doctor in this country I can't call that won't write me morphine this day. 
right here in Dallas right this minute. I can pick up the phone. All I have to do, I am publicly known to suffer from the neuropathic pain that I have. I can call any doctor in the state. They will write me a morphine drip, and I can go sit up in that room and just veg out. After about 11 months of doing this and then realizing that because of MS, I already had issues with my peristalsis reaction in my intestines, I ended up almost shutting down my ability to process food. And I needed a break. So, the break I chose was to take my own life. Sat in a closet for two and a half hours, gone in my mouth. Only thing to stop me was my children running up the hallway. So I figured I can't do this in the house. So I may as well do this somewhere else. So like the idiot that I am, I decided to pick Columbus Circle in New York City. Very, very busy circle. Cabs running around all the time. I just thought, hey, if I just walk into the middle of the street and trip at the right time, I get a car hit me, my kids get insurance, hoo-hoo. I don't look like the ass that I am. So what do I do? I step out in the middle of the street, trip, fall on the ground. I picked the only damn cab driver in New York City from Pakistan who gets out, oh, my dad, my goodness, oh, who came? <laughs> like the, he picks me up, walk me back across the street. He's literally talking to me like, you know, dude, are you crazy? You just tripped it. I stood on the side of that street, right dead in the middle of Columbus Circle for almost... 30 minutes telling myself I'm not even good enough to kill myself. Okay? Now, that night I called my doctor. I said, dude, I can't do this. I can't think. Whatever you got me on, I'm not, I can't, I can't go this way. Very smart man said, you know what? I'm going to ask you, just try some pot. I said, What? I won't give his name, but one of the most distinguished neurologists in this country, who up until now could probably never say that he even said that, still to today, for fear of what his colleagues might think. But he told me, go ahead and try some. I did, and I will tell you, I haven't looked back since. I have used cannabis or a cannabis type of product Thank you. I've done so every year, every day, every day, for now the last 15 years straight. But I will also say to you that my cannabis use in the last three years is going down. And why? Because we are becoming a little bit more efficient in what we're doing. We figured out along the way I think a lot of people in this industry are starting to figure out that what we need to really be sitting here talking about today and talking about every time we come together is signing a paper to commit to the fact that I don't really care if you want to do recreational marijuana or you want to smoke all day. Have as much fun as you want. But if you have the audacity to be sitting in this room because you're trying to get information so you can get into this business, so you can make money, and you're going to try to sell some medical marijuana, I'm here to tell you, 
you got a real problem right here. Because, hold on, listen to me. A lot of you don't know how much and how hard I've been working at trying to make sure that every single patient in this country who has a right to have a conversation with their doctor in private, and that doctor can issue them any drug on the planet, and no one says a thing, but people want to get in the middle of the conversation between a doctor and a patient when it comes to cannabis. So this is what I'm working on. But right now, this industry, which in 2014 grew by 74%, went from a $1.4 billion industry to a $2.7 billion industry, had 1.4 million, no, 1.4 million people visit either a dispensary or a recreational facility and purchase cannabis. Right now, delivering hundreds of millions of dollars in tax dollars. And I'm here to say to you that half of you are selling trash, trash that would do nothing but make me have a seizure, and other people like me. So I love this industry. I love the fact that a lot of you have come out today. You came out here to get information. You came out here because you're really wondering, can you make this much money? Well, yeah, maybe you can. If you want to do that and get in this and sell it to your friends and your buddies and your, your homies, Go right ahead. You hang a shingle claiming to be selling medicine, I'm going to tell you, in about another year, you're going to have some people coming looking. And it ain't going to be the Fed. Because I don't think the Fed's going to actually be the one that's going to turn this industry around and open this up for the rest of us. It's us. And if we don't start policing us, you can forget getting a national referendum on cannabis. Now, I got a lot of heads nodding. But three weeks ago, I was in front of the Congress talking on the hemp bill that's being passed right now. I had no heads there nodding. See, part of the problem that's going on is that everybody wants to be a part of an industry but haven't, haven't taken the time to even understand why this industry is the way it is. Where did it come from? Why is marijuana illegal? Anybody know? Wait a minute, what, what, why? Why is it illegal? Because back in the, back in when William Randolph Hearst and his buddies. Okay, and? Okay, wait, stop. All right, look. If I can give you guys one thing today, I need you all to take this away. You need to become voracious knowledge-seeking animals when it comes to cannabis. If you are going to get in this business and you don't understand that marijuana was made illegal not because it was a drug, it was made illegal because of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And why did that happen? Wait, don't applaud me. Let me go back. Why? Let's get to the to truth. People like William Randolph Hearst and DuPont Hearst, who at the time ran all the paper and furniture manufacturing, cutting down our big trees, you had DuPont just discovered something that was called textile. Had we continued to grow hemp, you would not have half of the environmental issues we have today because we would not be making clothing and things out of plastic and out of oil. But big business knew that. 
and made sure that they could villainize marijuana as much as they possibly can. You can look this up yourself. Follow me. The guy's name is Henry Anselinger. Anselinger was our first appointed, if you will, attorney general, but he wasn't under that title then. Anslinger, DuPont, and Hearst conspired to make sure that marijuana was made illegal. But if you just look this up yourself, I dare you to do it when you get done today. The biggest reason why they stated marijuana needed to be made illegal was because marijuana made white women want to have sex with the N-word and the S-word. Stated on the Capitol steps. So now for the last 80 years, still worried about having sex with black men and Hispanics? Because the truth of the matter is, to have a conference today to talk about marijuana's efficacy or whether or not it's an efficacious drug would be the most ignorant conference you could ever have. Why? Because again, this is where you have to do your research. Let's go back. How long has marijuana been around? Written about the first time, 2000 years, 2000 BC. 4, it, well, 4,000, but not in full writing. It's like this is now, you don't see the writing of it until 2000, so we don't know if it was written back in 4,000 or not. So the first thing written about it is now 2000 in the Chinese Shi Book of Medicine. 1000, India used marijuana in a milk called Bang that literally was exported around the world. Let's go back to, you know, zero. You know, the wise men weren't too stupid. You know, frankincense and myrrh have a combination kind of effect. Okay? And if you go to 33 AD, the anointing oil that Jesus used is a hemp-based product. So, if we over time, and I can go down the list date by date by date if you want them, but the only ones that are important are 37 and 61. In 1961, the UN held a commission that decided to make hemp and cannabis illegal worldwide, but allowed governments to sell it for medical purposes. Hence the reason why your government has been growing and distributing marijuana for now almost 40 years. How many of you know that? Through a program at the University of Mississippi that right now there's only four of the original 20 patients that are still left, but every single month until they die, they will get a canister of anywhere from 400 to 500 joints that are rolled, some of the worst marijuana in the world, grown at the University of Mississippi. First off, the Congress and the Senate should be thrown out. Every year, they approve this line item, and every year, they can't create any better weed than that. But this has been for 38 years. No, sorry, 42 years. But part of the reason why they've done this, and this is important to this industry, because all over the world, we have been funding, NIDA has been funding research on marijuana in Israel, in Ireland, in Spain. Dr. Mashulam, who everybody looks at as the God, got all of his research money, or 90% of it, from the United States. When he discovered THC, who got the patent? The U.S. government. 
Who has a patent on CBD? U.S. government. Who has a patent on CBN 1, 2, 3? U.S. government. And what are they doing right now? They're starting to license it out for commercialization. So, <laughs> I'm going to give you one that you better think about really hard. Right now, as you see, the 22 states that we have, some have recreational, some have legal or, or medical, some have a combination of both. About three months ago, both the Senate and the Congress tried to put forth two bills that I am working on, I'm going to continue to work on, to ensure that veterans have the right to use cannabis in a state where the people have spoken and those VA doctors get the right to write the recommendation without any form of punishment or loss of any VA benefits. Those bills have already been written, each one passed in each individual house, not signed into a bill yet. So what's coming very quickly is that the second this government feels confident enough that it can actually control the dissemination of the medical portion of this, if you have a dispensary and you aren't doing this at a medical quality level, doing it at a pharmaceutical processing level, using equipment, getting off of the tains, getting bringing this research into 2014, when Uncle Sam takes us over, we may have recreational marijuana everywhere, but I guarantee you that they are going to shut down the ability for anybody who's not licensed to sell something that claims to be a medicine. And I don't know where I sit on that, because I'm going to tell you, I travel all over this country. I'll be in Seattle late tonight. I will get some medication tonight when I get there. But it'll take me about 30 minutes in a shop to go through to make sure that what I'm putting in my body is something I'm about to put in my body. I have my own grower. I have my own formulator who formulates my own oils. But when I can't get it with him, when I'm traveling in places like this, right here we're having a convention, and they have dogs out here sniffing your purses when you're walking in the door, but this is a state that you can open carry a gun in? Let's take a gun, let's take a gun in anywhere we want, but let's make a child like Alexis, who was up here earlier, suffer. Let's make her cry. Let me figure out, hey, I got one for you. I, I just can't understand how this does happen, honestly. I, I, I don't mean to bum you guys out, but I got to tell you a little story happened to my family last two years. About two years ago, I had four children. My second oldest daughter just turned 26. In nursing school, South Carolina, having a wonderful life. You know, we have four kids, four different states. She's having a wonderful life. She decided to visit some friends in her old state of Ohio over Labor Day. So she goes up and, what are, you know, 25, 26 year olds, what do you do? You know, she went out and they were having a party, they were partying up. And a little tussling happened. She ended up falling down, hitting her back. You know, ouch. She calls me about a week later. Eh, should I go get an x-ray? I said, yeah, you should. Go check it. If you're still hurting right now, go check it. She goes away. She gets an x-ray. She calls me back and says, Dad, uh, look, the doctor wants to talk to you. He won't even tell me what's going on. I'm like, what? Well, first of all, you're a 26-year-old. He should talk to you. You're an adult. But okay. Put it on the phone. 
And I get on the phone and the doctor says to me, I think we saw something. I got on a plane the next day. So what does he see? Well, he sees something that looks a little weird on the x-ray, so I flew her to New York, get her to one of the best doctors in New York because I had an idea, but I didn't want to say. And a doctor then confirmed it. My daughter was diagnosed with lymphoma at age 26. And I should say that's one of the fastest growing cancers in America among females. 24 to 28 is lymphoma. So, you know, it's a shocker. The doctor starts going through all this stuff about what we got to do. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And he's rattling off drug after drug after drug after drug after drug after drug. Okay? I'm dead. I get ready to say, well, you know, wait, wait, wait. Does she really have to do that? And he said, well, Mr. Webbs, I, 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 I'm just letting you sit in, but it's your daughter's choice. I'm not allowed to be a part of that conversation. Okay? So they treat my daughter. She goes through this process, she sees the best doctor in the country, the guy that literally wrote the protocol that the last 60,000 people with lymphoma have been treated by. He wrote it. As a matter of fact, he's waiting right now for FDA approval for the new protocol for people like my kid. Why? Because one out of 70,000, it doesn't work. And my kid happened to pull a short straw. So she is cured, she goes home, they say she's fine. Four months later, she has a cough. I'm talking to her on the phone. I said, you know, you get your butt up back up here. She gets on a plane. She gets back up there. And the lymphoma came back. But it came back in a different form. One of the most virulent forms that it has. So I'm sitting in the now in the doctor's office going, what are we going to do? We can't use the other drug because we did that. We can't do this because you did that. So he says, I'm going to put her on this. And he starts explaining what this drug is. And he says to my child, you're going to lose all your skin. Your hair's going to fall out. You might lose the stomach, the lining in your stomach. You could throw up your esophagus. What the what? I'm like, are you, wait, are you kidding me? And again, shh, I don't have any say. Now, excuse me. If a doctor can burn my child from the inside out and the same doctor says, smoke this or eat this, why do we think it's okay to burn a person than to use this? I don't get it. I don't have a right to be a part of that conversation. But everybody else has, to be a, has a right to be a part of my conversation with my doctor about the medicine I'm on? Really? So, we all come together for great conferences like this to get information. Well, you should get some. Because right now, the average is about $150 million a year in state tax revenue that the states that have passed cannabis laws are starting to make. Some are as high as $190 million right this minute. Taxes. It's estimated by our own federal government that if we were to go ahead and legalize cannabis, both recreationally and recreationally, it would be a $17.9 billion windfall to the United States. $17.9 immediate. But you see, that's part of the problem also. Because that's part of what's driving some of you, not all of you, but some of you, who are in this room. Some of you are looking ahead. 
Woo-hoo. Texas may pass. I'm going to be one of those people to see if I can get involved in the business. I'll get me a dispensary. And how many of you actually sit down in your room and think to yourself, I don't want a dispensary. I want to help heal people who are hurting. Well, hold on. That's perfectly fine. Great. I see your hands. I won't question. But my question is some of the people who don't raise it. Because if you're in this business right now because you want to get in a wreck, weed, great. But I've been listening to people up here speak and seeing you nod from the back every time they talk medicine. Every time I hear the word out here, I hear, hear medicine. So if you came to a conference about medicine, I hope that you leave here understanding the damage you can do to people who have compromised immune systems, people who have neurological disease, with some of the trash that people are pumping. So, I would hope that a conference like this, or a convention like this, when you get up to leave, in about four or five months, I'm sure that the people who put this on are going to be reaching out to see if they can get you to show up at the state house or you to show up at a town hall meeting. That is what changes your politicians' minds. I can tell you right now. Thank you. Thank you. In the last, since 2000, when I, again, it was really 2001, I switched over from the opioids to cannabinoids, and I've stayed on that, I became an advocate. So as far back as 2001, I traveled around this country to seven of the 12 states back, uh, seven of the 12 states that passed since 2001, was involved in the legislative process. I'm right now helped to write the bill that's in Missouri before the House. We are in Ohio and in Pennsylvania right now. I'm trying to go into Florida right now because I truly believe that as we break that 25, when we have more states that have cannabis laws than don't, I think that we have a bigger and more powerful lobby and we will be able to turn this over. So, what do we all have to do? I really firmly believe and, and maybe some of you, again, if you came out because you just want to know what the industry has to offer when it comes to, you know, the opportunities and making money, okay, there's probably great networking you can do in here. But one of the things that the Fed has done to us all in this industry is they don't allow you to use a bank. We got money being put, I know some people in California who literally are using the desert in cans or big safes in their basements. In the last eight months, there's been an organization that I literally have been now vetting, looking at, it's called Kind Financials. We're gonna make an announcement in the next week. This group has been working closely with the FTC and they're working right now with the AG and trying to ensure that they can come up with some compliance software that any dispensary or any medical dispensary can use to literally make this a cashless business. You can go up on, on kindfinancialsllc.com and get some information. They have everything from seed to patient processing all the way through to how you can do your books. And I'm not doing this as a commercial. I'm saying this to you because if this industry does not get to that level, if we don't start 
or at least have legislations under, or, or sorry, municipalities understand that it's important for us to be able to put our money in the bank so that money from the bank can then be used in the society and the community. It, it, it's going to take them a while to approve this because we've had so much money laundering in this industry. But what we've been doing is working directly with the AG, trying to see if we can come up with a comprehensive set of rules and regulations that they will accept. And I don't know if you guys know who Matt Cook is or you know who Dr. Shackelford is, both of whom have now signed on as board members along with myself, because we are going to take this whole initiative to Congress and try to get them to now allow us to legitimize this business and come up out of the dark. The second we're able to do that, then we can start doing things like purchasing the right kinds of equipment that we can actually start doing medical extractions with, rather than using things that people and your cousin are making in the backyard. Fledgling business. It's got a long way to go. The only way it's going to get to where it's going is when some of you in here, again, if we go back to Prohibition, when Prohibition was ended for alcohol, for about the first 12 years after Prohibition, we had moonshiners. That's really what most people were who were creating liquor, just moonshiners. And around the country, you had people dropping dead in their kitchens because people were processing things and using any form of alcohol they could use, making anything they could, selling it at hooch. People were dying, so the government stepped in and said, enough. And that's why you have the Bureau of Firearms, Tobacco, and Alcohol. Now, they're going to try their best to bring this industry under that. This may end up being the Bureau of Firearms, Tobacco, Alcohol, and Marijuana. I say, before they step up and feel the need to do that, we need to do that and self-police. We've got a long way to go. There's seven states I think this, this election process have ballot initiatives in. And we're thinking there may be even more next year. We can get past three or four, we're at 26. Once we're at 26, I think we make a big difference. I normally don't do it, but I think because of this room, and I've heard some of your questions earlier. Anybody have any questions? I'll do that now before I close. Any questions? Yes, sir. taxes that are collected and things like that. Do you, do you think by placing or allowing uh, dispensaries, people in the canna industry to do banking the way other businesses have to do, I, I, it, it, it raises the question to me in these, in these jurisdictions where this is going on, are we collecting all the tax money that we should be? Well, here, here, okay, here's, here's something that we got to got to really get through, because you, you'll get this when I say it. Yes, sir. Well, here's what's going on right now. I mean, literally, this industry, we have maybe three or four different little demographics still happening. We have the older baby boomers who remember what it was like in the 60s to roll a joint, sit in the backyard, back porch, blow that joint, okay? We have the younger baby boomers in the next generation who tried to use devices like bongs and things, get a little creative. Then you have today's group who all think that if I can come up with the best new e-pen or the best new this, that, or the other, I will make a billion dollars and be the guy. And again, I'm going to go back to it. 
I don't talk to too many people who tell me how they have been looking genomically at trying to ensure that we get out of the 57 different adulterated garbage seeds that are out here. Why not go back to the original plant, which had the best THC-CBD combination ever made until man started processing it out? If we went back to that, we could change it. So if we started there, and I can track it seed to patient, which I'm going to tell you right now, Kind Financial has the entire setup for you to be able to do that. So you get your seeds in, you will barcode that plant as it grows. From the time that plant is actually processed and goes into somebody's possession as a medicine, you can track it. You'll be able to know the amount of fertilizer used, what was used on it. That information should be done at every dispensary, every grow facility in America today. Watch. So when we do that, right there alone, just to get to this point, I have 30 or 40 different business touch points. 20 of those, the 25 of them, all get to take their money right to the bank. The one who has a little seed can't. The second that seed can be processed and somebody can, look, whether you like it or not, you're going to pay taxes. Okay? But we may as well pay our share, fair share. I believe very strongly in this industry coming together, regulating ourselves the same way as, I'll give you some examples, you know, um, hyperbarics or the dive industry. The dive industry, an industry that's, that's a $30 billion a year industry in America alone, is unregulated by the federal government. Every rule and regulation they have is all self-regulated. And they did such a good job, the government said, hands off. Why? Because Uncle Sam's making taxes on every single bit of that oxygen that you put in your lungs when you're underwater. So why not just cough it up, do it the right way, and I would tell you that, yes, in fact, there would be more tax dollars, but I would believe there would be more revenue. There is zero reason why in California right now, in some of the smaller areas, you know, there are robberies going on. A lot of you guys know this, right? People are going to dispensaries because they know it's cash and sticking them up. I'm just going to say it. Why is this not a cashless industry? Why can't I go to my dispensary, take out my prepaid credit card, Stick it in, stick it out, walk away. Why can't, when I stick it in, stick it out, that dispensary now tracks every single bit of data about that single purchase. Taxes are paid this way, income taxes are paid this way, employment taxes are paid this way, you make money. That's what kind, sir, kind financial could do for you now, but this is what I'm going to try to force in every single state around the nation. Yes, ma'am. Wait a minute, yes, ma'am. Here we go, Jay, sir, with the mic, sir. You got a microphone, right? Come over there. Help me out. Yes, ma'am. Hello. I consider myself to be a, a representation of the millennials, and there is still much debate on, but on the difference between what it really is considered recreational versus medicinal. When I think of recreational, I think it's somewhat therapeutic. Um, I want to know, what do you think, um, def definitely speaking towards the, the millennials and the young people, what, what platform can we take to really step above and to be seen as activists in, in this realm instead of just being you know, on the sideline, um, uh, really playing into the stereotypes? What platform can we take? It's too big of a question. I mean, it's, that's way too big of a question. Get involved. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you where to get involved. Just pick, a, pick your spot. What's the difference between recreational weed and medical weed, in certain places in this country, there is no difference. It just depends on the ML level of THC that's in it. In most states right now, they're, they're requiring that any edibles have, have uh, if they're recreational, they are no stronger than 10 ML or MGs per, per unit. 
If it's uh, medical, you can put in there anything you want. If you're in Colorado, you can go up to 150 to 200 milligrams of THC in a chocolate bar if you're medical. If you are recreational, you have to buy 20 candy bars, 10 each. So that's the only difference that most people are making right now. But the truth should be what people like Columbia Care are doing and other organizations in this country that have been backed by some money right now and literally have just built a complete pharmaceutical processing facility and got FDA approval on their pharmaceutical processing facility. So they can manufacture Vicodin, they can manufacture Tawin, they can manufacture birth control pills. But they're using that same facility to manufacture cannabis. So what's going to happen? They're going to take cannabis from, you know, listen to me. Do you go over to your friend's house and ask them, hey, can I have some aspirin you grew in the backyard? (laughs) What'd you use on it? Or do you trust aspirin? And let's talk about aspirin for a minute. It's the only non-scheduled drug in this country that right now any child can walk into 7-Eleven grocery store, buy a bottle of aspirin. Got to be 10 years old and older. They'll stop an 8-year-old. But a 10-year-old, they will walk out the store with two bottles of aspirin. And that child can go home, take a third of that bottle, and be dead on your living room floor. And we sell it because it's completely unscheduled. And again, we go back to scheduling something like cannabis. Yes, wait. Sir, yes, sir. Mr. Williams, why don't we go and unite our powers here to have this drug descheduled? I already have hundreds of people that have lots of different problems that don't have those problems any longer. The rescheduling thing really would be nothing more than an administrative struggle of the pen by the President of the United States. He could do this the same way as he's writing all these other executive orders. He could have rescheduled this from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2, problem solved. But then again, it's not, because they're not going to reschedule until they set it up for, see, here's another one that you don't know. For the last four years, the patent on Marinol ran out. What? Marinol patent got extended twice, and it has now run out. There are seven different pharmaceutical companies, no one, the Fed will not let us know, who have been given permission to grow cannabis straight up so they can have a non-synthetic cannabinoid-based replacement for Marinol. It's the same reason why, right now, GW Pharmaceuticals, Cybertex, has not entered the United States. It's been in with the FDA for the last three years. We don't have a competitive, manufactured American drug, so until we do, they won't approve that. So, it's, it's, it, going back to the scheduling problem, is again... I think it hasn't been rescheduled because until they set up the Pfizer's of the world and have them in position to take this over, they're not going to do it. Because if they did so, they'd have to turn to us, and they consider us so un- unregulated. Yes, ma'am. Wait, wait, he's, who's got it? This guy right behind you. Yes. Yes, sir. What are your thoughts on medical cannabis and the toxic chemicals that they spray on it during cultivation? Wait, what am I? Again, I'm here to tell you. They don't spray that on mine. I have somebody growing for me specifically, processing for me. You know, it's really, it's, it's absolutely asinine to me that it took us until five years ago to figure out that we shouldn't be using tains. In 2001, my first processed liquid was with an oxygen extraction. And I shifted over to CO2 in 2001. 
It wasn't until 2010 that you started seeing oxygen extractions. And it's so ridiculous. We could have done that. Look, they process olive oil and everything you eat at home, every oil you get is processed with hexane. And why? Hexane has the lowest evaporation points, like 91 degrees. But what do we dumb, I want to use the other word, do? We try to use hexane, but we pump in 60, 70 other extra milliliters of it so that it makes sure that it doesn't evaporate off. So now you have a really caustic chemical in your food or in your marijuana. This is not that hard. But we have, everybody wants to be their own bathroom, own garage, every basement scientist. You know, it, it is a plant, guys. We do make tamoxifen out of plants. We make a lot of other things out of plants. The technology existed long before we decided, ooh, this is a great idea. But we don't even reach out to the best people in the marketplace to see if we can do that. So I'm hoping and I'm going to fight to get scheduling changed. That's been my argument, but I can tell you, we are going to have, I think, an easier go at this if we pass the two laws, the two bills that are in right now that are hemp bills. Most people in this country don't know this. Last year alone, $600 million worth of hemp products were sold in the United States. Not one bit of it was grown here. $600 billion of revenue left the United States, went to Canada, Kazakhstan, and some of the other stands, not grown here. How ignorant is that? I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how, um, you've mentioned big pharma, right? How can patients who may be low income or something like that protect their ability to home grow their own medicine as we proceed at the federal level? Okay, I'm going to here go, because I told you, there's certain things I'm going to talk about that I guess is going to make some people angry. I understand what you, what, what a person, how people feel that, you know, I should be able to grow my own at the home. For me, if you're growing weed, grow young. If you want medicine, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to my cousin Herbie asking him to make, I'd stick a needle in myself every day. I stick two of them in myself every day, in the morning and the afternoon. The one needle I stick in myself, right now my insurance company is already, they try to, they try to, they're trying to drop me and they can't. See, because you know, when you pay a lot of money for insurance and they try to be buttheads, oh, you can, you can just, mm. So they had the audacity last year after having known that I have stuck this same needle in my body. I have a modified immune system. It's been changed because of this needle I stick in my body. They have spent $1.4 million in the last 14 years to let me stick this in my body. That's how much this costs. My needle costs $38 a day, every day. I've not missed a shot for 14 or 15 years now. Okay? This is what I'm paying for that. But the truth is, if when I shift over, okay, part of the reason why the prices is that, is, is that high is because this particular medication that I'm taking modifies my immune system in a way that it makes my body attack this liquid rather than attacking me, okay? So it's weird. My body, once it absorbs this, makes this look like to my immune system that there's some weird things where it goes and attacks that and doesn't come after me. I don't want my cousin making me something that's going to jack with my immune system. And what we don't understand is that if you really process cannabinoids the right way, 
when we get the science down correctly, and let's go back to this. Everybody's been talking about, you know, the difference between CBD and CB, uh, THC. I think if Dr. Mishulman was on earlier, you may have listened to him. He has said it over and over and over again. People have gotten too caught up in this separation. It's all about an orchestra effect. You know, cannabinoids are there for a reason, okay? So, you know, as we keep, and we're seeing it all over the country with children who have been using some of these varied forms of just straight CBD, hemp CBD, and they're not getting any results. And part of the reason why is because you can't drive the CBD into the cell walls without the other cannabinoids. They're not. You can't play Tchaikovsky without drums. You have a whole orchestra. You can't play Beethoven without strings. But there are other instruments there. They just play a little softer. And you need them to make the same music. It's the same thing with cannabinoids. One doesn't work. That's where we found out after now 35 years of Marinol, it's not going to work. Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, I'm a neuroscientist, and there's a real lack of funding for clinical cannabis research in the United States. So big. Um, So my question is, how do we fundraise for clinical cannabis research for the trials that need to happen in the U.S.? We need trials not just for epilepsy, not just for PTSD, but for every single disease that it works for. Let's validate it. You can't. You can't. It is against the law. The only place in America that can officially do any form of research on cannabis is the University of Mississippi. They've now just extended that and are granting two other, grant, two other uh, research grants. But until we change the law, and it was done this way deliberately, to kind of keep it, there's absolutely, I don't know how many of you watched the Republican debate and the Democratic debate four weeks ago, when each one of the candidates in one week were asked what did they feel about marijuana. And I'm here to tell you, there's not one of them, either side, that is friendly to us. None. Christie stood on the stage and lied right through his teeth. Because he's been fighting the dispensing of a bill that's been passed there since Governor Corzine stepped down. He fights it. Every single one of them who said the research isn't there. Are you kidding me? Both Rubio and Cruz should be fired. They're the ones who signed the daggone bill to, to fund the University of Mississippi. Get rid of them both. Okay? What's that? There's one candidate who is trying to deschedule, not reschedule. That's Sanders. Can you talk about what the difference between deschedule and rescheduling is, please? Yeah, again. And to deschedule, you're gonna. What you want to do is take it. It would become aspirin, because aspirin is descheduled. It's not scheduled. So aspirin is one of these drugs that sits in that middle spot. I can't read that from this far. I'll get your microphone. Hey, can you get a microphone, this gentleman over there? So deschedule, which would mean taking it off a schedule completely making it like aspirin, it could be sold anywhere. I happen to not agree. I don't agree at all. I think it should be a scheduled drug. There's no sense of us because we are, right now, and I'm not trying to be a jerk when I say this, and I've gone to Colorado, I'm right now involved in three companies, I opened three dispensaries and walked away from them myself because the pig that I was in business with decided that he wanted to do it another way and I'm not going to do it that way, period. So I've walked away. The problem, I think, right now is that until this industry embraces the fact that there are some smart people in the world, we don't even, we've not even cracked the molecule yet. The potential that different combinations of purely extracted cannabinoids have for neurological disease should be a medicine. Especially if I start to put together CBDV, CBN1, 2, put those together with CHCBD and THC, I drive it in a little bit with a different medium, 
This is an injectable that can go right into a tumor and crush a tumor. We know that. So I don't believe it should be descheduled. I think there should be a schedule for anything. Let me get this straight. If you're calling it medicine, what did I say when I walked in here? You want to do recreational, grow all the pots you want. I could care less. I'm going to tell you, from my perspective, you hang a sign on your wall saying that you want patients to come see you, it better be medically raised. Better be done. And I need that to be scheduled. Yes, ma'am. Wait. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I have a comment and a question. I am a breast cancer survivor, and it really touched me when you were talking about your daughter. I used cannabis oil during my fight, and right now I'm cancer-free. And my question for you is, has your daughter thought about using cannabis oil? Oh, my daughter uses cannabis completely. My, my, I, I, you know, I, I have four children. Only one of them thinks that I'm crazy. The other, the other three. The other three, they're all adults. They're, my kids are all over the age of 21. And all, I have a child who, again, I'm the first person in my family lineage to have any form of neurological disease, but what we now see and we know that when men have MS, we seem to pass on epilepsy to our children. So one of my daughters is an epileptic. She's been using cannabis now for the last 14 years. And I've gotten her, she's, she literally does have to use a couple of her epilepsy drugs, one of them, but she's off seven of them. That's been for like seven years. Anybody else? What would you say to fellow patients who are intimidated to talk to their doctors or to their legislators about the use of medical cannabis? Two, it's two different questions. You said, what would you say to fellow patients who are intimidated to talk to their doctor? Remember, you pay him. Stop being silly. You pay him. If he says something back to you negative, say, okay, homeboy, I'll take my business elsewhere. Because truthfully... If I go to my doctor and I ask them, I need you to look up and see if there's something that can remove this finger fungus. It's his requirement for my visit to do that. If I say to him, I've heard and I see that doctors all over the world are prescribing, prescribing, not recommending, prescribing marijuana. I want you to figure out how you get this done for me. If he says, well, I thanks, see ya, money goes elsewhere. Now, how about you getting involved in legislation? Don't even ask that. You shouldn't even ask. You should go home tonight, look at that mirror, and say, the next time anybody asks me to show up to get them to change the law, I'm showing up. Period. Montel, that comes a transition to this question. I've worked at the legislature down in Austin for 30 years. When the mass come down there, line up, the legislators walk away, head to the back rooms, when a celebrity shows up, all of a sudden the whole capital is full. Everybody shows up. People listen. I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's the culture here, but Australia just passed medical marijuana and only took a week. Well, okay, and he's, he's also actually saying something very... I wanted to show it. Unfortunately, we could not get uh, a video to play for you. But I'm going to go back and give you an example of how you change legislation. Missouri. I got a call last January, uh, middle of, near the end of January, from a friend of mine who said, I just want you to listen to this conversation for a second. Puts his phone on speaker. The guy on the speakerphone is a EMT who has been fighting in the state to get CBD there because he's got a, a, a niece who has intractable seizures and knows it would work for us. We listen, we talk, and talk, and talk. 
So we said, okay, you know what? We've got to move a legislation that's probably one of the most conservative legislations in the country, let's say that way. You know, uh, all of the, the church organizations have their special compounds in Missouri in the bottom, okay? So they're really, 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 really conservative. We try to figure out how can we get this to resonate among the legislators. So you're right. Unfortunately, when you go in, if there's only 20 of you, it's not a big enough crowd. If there's 70 of you, now the news shows up. And I'll guarantee you that they won't hide in the back when news is there. You need a person to be able to lead that, that conversation with the news, they'll step out. But let me just tell you what happened in Missouri. So Missouri, I just got a camera crew, two camera crews, got another individual, and in Missouri State House, you don't have to go through metal detectors. Security checklist. I walked around the Missouri State House, and somebody had, went ahead of me stating that I was going to do a documentary on why the Missouri legislature was so against patients in need. I stuck cameras in about seven legislators' faces. The rest of them did run out the back door. By that next Monday morning, all of them were begging to be a part of this because they saw what happened on the news. We just did this in Ohio. In Ohio, we ruled in Ohio. No, John, where's John at? In Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania, right? That's, yeah, in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They had one legislator in Harrisburg that held the bill up in a committee and wouldn't get it out. So what I do? We came in on a Friday. We held a press conference. That was a huge press conference. Half the people in the state saw it. I called that legislator out by name, gave up his phone number on the air. And by Friday evening, he had left town. By Monday morning, it was taken out of his committee, put into another committee, and we just got a vote on it today. So... One of the biggest problems is, you see it right now. And, and again, I'm not making a political statement of support or against, I'm just telling you. Half the legislature in America are afraid of Donald Trump. Why? Because he has the power of the media. If he blows his nose, the media is going to show up. You have to turn this into a media issue here. And if you do it the right way, I'm telling you, the tide can't be stopped. Because no one wants to come down on the side of, being against a child living a normal life. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, I was curious, do you have any plans of, of um, extending any of the activism here in our government? I mean, given that there are celebrities here in Texas that support it, but they're not willing to put their face to it. And obviously, with the state, the size that we have, a known red state, to try and turn this state green on our own, we're clearly not successful in doing so. I don't see, okay. Uh, you know, and, and I don't mind being on the spot, but here, here's what's going on. Just so you know, and I, I've kind of been reticent because when I tell people what I'm doing, then it sounds like I'm, I'm trying to tell you that I'm a little crazy, but I am. I'm a little ADD. I right now am right this minute with a company that I formed. We are doing the most comprehensive traumatic brain injury study this country has done in the last 15 years. Right now, three centers of excellence around the country. University of Montreal, Portland, Oregon, Orlando, Florida. I'm working on a biofuel initiative that I can take everything from human waste to coal and process it 98.6% emission free. I could save the entire coal industry right now. And it's not an ugly word. What we do, we are end-of-life biologics. I've done something that's a little different than anybody else. The doctors, scientists that are working on this 
are scientists that have worked at the National Laboratory in Idaho for the last 20 years. These guys have a patent. They literally have created a Earth's stomach. So we can digest carbonaceous material and turn it into energy. I'm working on three initiatives right now. I don't know if you know, but I, I, I'm literally so involved with our veterans right now and trying to make sure that while we go through this transition, a lot of people talking trash, truth comes out. And the truth of the matter is that we still have 22 veterans a day taking their own lives. And I want to tell you something, with that 22 number, you better understand this, that really isn't 22 soldiers committing suicide. There may be about 12 to 13 committing suicide. The other 11 may just be having adverse reactions to medications that they put them on. Where we know for a fact you wouldn't have that same interaction here. So, bottom line question is, would I come to Texas and help work on this? But, yeah. But, but hold on. Wait a second. I'm going to tell you. I'm not coming unless I know when I show up there's going to be this many people in the room. Because I'm not going to be left alone. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, um, actually, I came here because my son is five. We just found out that he has muscular dystrophy. And so you said that you're very specific on where you get your product from. Do you have or will you have in the future somewhere that we can go to to find reputable companies um, to get the right product for specific diseases like that? Okay. Let me tell you, this is a fact. And again, I don't want to anger people in this room because I know some of you have worked on X, Y, and Z. But I'm here to tell you, if anybody makes a claim to you about what marijuana does, unless it has to do with three specific diseases, there has never been a double-blind study done, so they're lying. They're making it up. Because if you say, I know so-and-so, Bobby Green, who is in a wheelchair and it does X for him, that's called an anecdote. That's not called the truth. Now, having said that, I'm going to tell you straight up, and this is not why I'm here. I didn't show up here today to tell you this, and I'm not promoting anything. I made an attempt five years ago, six years ago, to get into this business. I was going to do it in California first. I opened up three different dispensaries. I went and saw legislations in, every, in, in L.A., in West Hollywood, up in Sacramento. I sat down with every one of the city councils. Matter of fact, I should back up and tell you, when I was doing this, I am the first person in this country to be issued a grow license by the United States Senate. Because I got the first grow license in the District of Columbia. I got the first grow license in the District of Columbia. And I walked away. I walked away from right now, a company that's probably pulling so much money, it's stupid. But for me, money doesn't matter in this. This is medicine. And unless I have people who are going to respect this as medicine, I don't want to have anything to do with you. So since I have not been able to find that in this industry, and I'm going to tell you, I've traveled... California, Colorado, Pennsylvania, all over the country, I still yet to find someone that's in this business right now that I want to do business with. So I am about to launch an initiative that I'm going to tell you, I'm going to standardize. i got to keep myself from getting in trouble. I'm going to launch an entire brand under my name and my face in all 22 states where cannabis is legal. It's going to take us probably the next five years to roll it out because each state, until the national government changes their law, 
each state has to be an individual LLC. So I'm going to be starting in the next two months rolling out an initiative so that people who want to have a choice can actually use what I use and I will explain exactly what it does for me. And, I'm, and so far, everybody that I know that uses everything that I use, they seem to get the same results. We will then back that up and be funded enough to do fully blown clinical trials. And unfortunately, I can't do the clinical trials here in the United States. So I've already started the process of getting clinical trials done outside of the United States. Yeah. Yes, sir. I'll take two more and then we got to go. Yes, sir. Do you have the availability to get your product to veterans for free by handing a bill to the VA for them to pay for it? What I intend to do, and especially, and, and, and I'm hoping over the next year, I form some partnerships with some people in legislature, some people who are former political appointees, and we are going to the VA in those states where cannabis is legal, where a doctor who is a VA doctor could then legally write a recommendation. I get, I, yeah, I get, I get, huh? But I, I, I can't get it here in I know you can't. I can't even get tramadol. I can't get a pain medication because I take THC. And I have a broken neck and I'm 100% disabled and I can't take a pill in this state right now today. So I need help changing that. Well, and again, you do need help changing it. But everybody sitting in this room needs to become the activist that gets that to happen. Because again, just like Alexis, you're sitting here in the state of Texas. If you just rolled across the border to a separate state, you treat yourself and come back. I know. I get it. But you got to get the people in your home to respect the fact that you have a right to live with dignity. And unfortunately, the rest of the people in the state don't think you have a right to dignity. Speak up. Yes, sir. Mr. Williams, first, thanks for your service in the military and the media. We really yes, appreciate it. Uh, you were mentioning that we can't get away from paying taxes. In my home state of Oregon, they've just passed a bill where patients will get their medicine tax-free, recreational will be taxed at 17 to 20%. Could recreational marijuana be the way that we get the tax revenue to pay for medicine so vets and patients could get it for free? Well, let me, let me, let me say to you, most states don't tax at the state level uh, pharmaceuticals. And so in any state where the law applies, it should be the exact same way. I feel very strong about the fact that there should be tax revenues coming out of recreational marijuana. No question. I mean, honestly, and, and, and truthfully, and, and you're going to go home and you're pissed off at me for saying this, but I'm going to tell you, give me a break. It's a weed, guys. <laughs> and America can grow weed that can help benefit our financial issues in this country. We should be selling that product and taxing the hell out of it. When it comes to medicine, absolutely not. you and there's a lady way over there sir this lady. Uh, okay so you know to come together you know I've got plan- pamphlets and brochures from you know and there's apps to you know find to grow is there an app where we can come together and know when to show up to that's on you I, I, that's what is it what is it Texas Normal, DFW Normal, uh, Drug Policy Alliance is another one. It's drugpolicy.org. It's a great organization, and they take all of the information and put it on one website. 
There's MPP, DPA, there's several organizations. I mean, unfortunately, again, even when it comes to the organizations. Let me tell you, I worked with, with MPP before Peter Lewis passed away. I met with Peter Lewis multiple times. I met with George Soros multiple times. Those organizations talk to each other once a month. They split up which state they take. And until we stop the stupid, this industry in the state continue to flounder the way it is. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Mr. Williams, um, my question is, uh, my question is kind of more aimed at the hemp industry. Do you think that if we were able to grow hemp here in the United States on a level that, you know, we were able to produce fuel, we were able to produce textiles, you know, um, foods, consumables, that that would actually kind of cut down on some of the diseases and the things that we're, you know, dealing with right now? Because that's kind of, I've, I've been studying this for well over 10 years. I've grew it myself, and my research has, has aimed me more towards the hemp because it seems like if we can start there, that well, I mean, you this would you don't have to, You don't have to really start there. Last year alone, $600 million worth of hemp product was sold in the United States. All that was sold by companies outside of the United States. Right, so what has to happen is laws have to be changed. And I mean, guys, we, we, we could talk theoretically, but right now there's a bill before the Senate and a bill before the Congress. This is what I say. You, it's incumbent upon you in this industry to do your research. Right this minute, if you were going up online, getting about 300 of your friends to go up and back the two senators and the two congressmen that wrote that bill, that bill would get a hearing at the House. But nobody's backing them, and, and therefore it's going to just flounder and won't get passed. And America will miss out on a trillion-dollar industry. So, yes, it needs to be done, but it's not, you know, it's not a matter of when, it's a matter of who. And most of the time, the who is you. Please. All right. Wait, I got this lady right there. Yes, ma'am. Sorry, my voice is weak from from everything. Um, I'd like to thank you for using your celebrity for this, giving us a larger voice on a on a global scale. But as as you're moving forward and you're helping different state states pass their laws. What is being taken into consideration for patients like yourself or like myself is, I'm not from Texas, I'm from New Mexico. I'm legal in New Mexico. I'm in a state that is, is totally illegal, which is why my voice is messed up. I have throat cancer. I can't take my medicine while I'm here, which means that tomorrow when I go home, I'll be back on oxygen. We can't travel. We're not safe. I'm not safe within my own state. What is being done is we're passing the laws in all the different states that... If I go from Texas to New Mexico, once Texas is legal, yeah, but girlfriend, hold on. I'm not, I'm not trying to, not trying to tie it. I will go back to it again. If not you, then who? I do. That's the thing. I, I sit with legislators. Okay. I've, I've asked, I've asked my House, my Senate. I've sat down with them face to face, and when they tell, when we talk about my cancer and my medication, and then a Republican that was a staunch against it, and I asked her about her health because she had she was coughing during our meeting, and I asked her what she was taking, and she told me, and I said, isn't it nice to be able to bring your medicine in with you? I got you, but you know, again, this is all rhetorical, and I'm not trying to put you down. It's like for me. I can complain all I want the fact that I, I was afraid to come over here because normally I'm carrying. I'm telling you straight up. 
So I, I'm fortunate that I just left Utah where I was able to use and I left everything I had except for my utensils. I'm going to be in Seattle at midnight tonight. I will be in a dispensary at one o'clock in the morning tonight. I'm just not going to miss. But places like this, where I, you know, when people walk around carrying guns out in the open, I don't trust, I ain't going to happen. So we just wanted to know how your daughter was doing. Oh, she right now, I should tell you, I'm sorry, I should have gone back and told you that. After that second treatment, and yes, everything the doctors thought was going to happen, happened. Half her skin came off, she threw up her esophagus. She is now, you got to keep our fingers crossed, if she comes back in December with a second spec scan or PET scan that says no cancer, then she would be considered cured. She's, she's now one full year out. Thank you. So look, I'm not going to keep you here late. I, you know, we gotta, I got to break it up, my friend. I'm so sorry. You want to yell, yell out your last one because you're the only hand up. Yes, sir. So schedule one means no scientific use whatsoever, and politicians are the ones who decide that, not scientists. So I want to know if scheduling itself is the best way to federally regulate uh, drugs as a whole, particularly cannabis too. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just like uh, the IRS. Is the IRS the best way to handle taxes? No. It's just like you know, the, the FDA. I mean, unfortunately, it was a system that was put in place. And unfortunately, we just have people in this country who are just too crazy to think about the easy or the legitimate things. They always want to make things too hard. So the schedule process is going to be something back there that we're going to have to deal with. Um, no, that's not the best way to handle this. But if tomorrow the president just wrote one executive order and rescheduled this as Schedule 2, it would change all legislation that criminalized us for using our medication. So that's one that's important, I believe. Number two, though it would throw a monkey wrench into the entire system. Because it's a Schedule 2 drug, that then means that a doctor could write not a recommendation, but a prescription, bringing us back to the conundrum we're in, because no doctor is going to write a prescription to a place that does not have a licensed laboratory. So I go back to the first thing that I said here. Even right now, at this hour, earlier today, this room was almost full. Right now, we're half full. Everybody's here because you're interested in this topic. This thing is going to end tonight. You're going to walk away, have dreams of making billions of dollars, but none of you are going to call the other person who's sitting next to you. So why don't we take one second right now, and if you don't know the person next to you, turn to them and introduce yourself. Because you put your hands on them earlier. Now, now that we've done that, I would suggest that the representatives of, of normal, the representatives of DPA, the representatives of MPP, the representatives of actives, the representatives of the organizations that brought you here, you guys ought to be scheduling a meeting within the next 30 days. And you pull it off, I will tell you this, I, this state is so easy, you just don't know how easy this would be to change this over in this state. You think it's so tough because you said God's so conservative? This is a piece of cake. You know what? No. Yeah, you need a little bit of money. You need a little bit of money for, 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 for lobbying. But remember, 
you know, your former president. You know, just saying. The one that's there right now, just saying. It's not like they don't understand what's going on here. So, you know, again, you see what's going on right now in the presidential race. They're throwing things in people's faces about what you did 30 years ago. All you got to do is be smart enough. Everyone, I guarantee you, if the legislator in this state is between the ages of 40, not nah, between the ages of 50 and 65, either they or their family member have used. And all you got to do is be smart. Go find the family member of the, of the representative. You guys are so silly, you don't even buy. Go ask the cousin. I'm throw him under the bridge anyway, under the bus anyway. All right. I got to say thank you for you guys. Again, if we work together, we will make this happen. Thank you. Well, there you go. A great episode with Montel Williams. I hope you learned a lot about him. He's very, very dynamic in person to be listening to. Hope you enjoyed that part of the show. I'm finishing up with the colonoscopy and should be back on the air live tomorrow. We'll see how well I recover from all the drugs and such, but I think everything will be just fine. Don't forget, coming up next, we've got the Stoner Jesus Show coming up at 5 p.m. Pacific Time. And, of course, at 6 p.m., the debut of Tommy Chong's podcast here on CannabisRadio.com. That's coming up at 6 p.m. Pacific, so stay tuned for that. For everyone here at Roller J Studios and my gastroenterologist, I'm Radical Russ. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, take care of each other, tokers. I'm taking care of me. This is the Russ Belleville Show. The Russ Belleville Show is blogging and podcasting daily at RadicalRuss.com. You take a scene, you manage, you 